This is what the Sovereign Lord showed me. He was preparing swarms of locusts after the king's share had been harvested. And just as the late crops were coming up, when they had stripped the land clean, I cried out, Sovereign Lord, forgive! How can Jacob survive? He is so small. So the Lord relented. This will not happen, the Lord said. This is what the Sovereign Lord showed me. The Sovereign Lord was calling for judgment by fire. It dried up the great deep and devoured the land. Then I cried out, Sovereign Lord, I beg you, stop. How can Jacob survive? He is so small. So the Lord relented. This won't happen either, the Sovereign Lord said. This is what he showed me. The Lord was standing by a wall that had been built true to plumb, with a plumb line in his hand. And the Lord asked me, what do you see, Amos? A plumb line, I replied. And the Lord said, look, I am setting a plumb line among my people Israel, I will spare them no longer. The high places of Isaac will be destroyed and the sanctuaries of Israel will be ruined. With my sword I will rise against the house of Jeroboam. Then Amaziah, the priest of Bethel, sent a message to Jeroboam, king of Israel. Amos is raising a conspiracy against you in the very heart of Israel. The land cannot bear all his words. But this is what Amos is saying. Jeroboam will die by the sword and Israel will surely go into exile away from their native land. Then Amaziah said to Amos, Get out, you seer. Go back to the land of Judah. Earn your bread there and do your prophesying there. Don't prophesy anymore at Bethel, because this is the king's sanctuary and the temple of the kingdom. Amos answered Amaziah, I was neither a prophet nor the son of a prophet, but I was a shepherd. And I also took care of sycamore fig trees. But the Lord took me from tending the flock and said to me, Go prophesy to my people Israel. Now then, hear the word of the Lord. You say... Do not prophesy against Israel and stop preaching against the descendants of Isaac. Therefore, this is what the Lord says. Your wife will become a prostitute in the city and your sons and daughters will fall by the sword. Your land will be measured and divided up and you yourself will die in a pagan country and Israel will surely go into exile away from their native land. This is what the Sovereign Lord showed me, a basket of ripe fruit. What do you see, Amos? He asked. A basket of ripe fruit, I answered. And the Lord said to me, The time is ripe for my people Israel. I will spare them no longer. In that day, declares the Sovereign Lord, the songs in the temple will turn to wailing. Many, many bodies flung everywhere. Silence. Hear this, you who trample the needy and do away with the poor of the land, saying, When will the new moon be over, that we may sell grain, and the Sabbath be ended, that we may market wheat, skimping on the measure, boosting the price, cheating with dishonest scales? buying the poor with silver and the needy for a pair of sandals, selling even the sweepings with the wheat. The Lord has sworn by himself the pride of Jacob, I will never forget anything they have done. Will not the land tremble for this, and all who live in it mourn? The whole land will rise like the Nile, and it will be stirred up and then sink like the river of Egypt. In that day, declares the Sovereign Lord, I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. I will turn your religious festivals into mourning and all your singing into weeping. I will make all of you wear sackcloth and shave your heads. I will make that time like mourning for an only son and the end of it like a bitter day. The days are coming, declares the Sovereign Lord, when I will send a famine through the land, not a famine of food or a thirst for water, but a famine of hearing the words of the Lord. People will stagger from sea to sea and wander from north to east, searching for the word of the Lord, but they will not find it. In that day, the lovely young women and strong young men will faint because of thirst. Those who swear by the sin of Samaria, who say, As surely as your God lives, Dan, or as surely as the God of Beersheba lives, they will fall, never to rise again.
They say that a picture can speak a thousand words. And so as we look at these two chapters, Amos 7 and 8, we need to get to grips with four pictures, four images. It's a section full of imagery that God used to communicate with Amos. If you have a look down, um, in our translation, we get the Sovereign Lord showed me. So you get it in verse 1, 7 verse 1. The Sovereign Lord showed me a swarm of locusts. In 7 verse 4, he showed me a judgment by fire. In 7 verse 7, he showed me a plumb line. And then you get it in 8 verse 1 as well. This is what the Sovereign Lord showed me, a basket of ripe fruit. And we will unpack each of those things in a bit. But the thing is about pictures is we're meant to feel them. The sense in which it's right that a picture does give us a thousand words. We're meant to wrestle with them and think and imagine them and feel something of what's going on. So there's four pictures that we'll come to terms with and we'll unpack. There are, it's a tale of two halves as one in one sense. Um, that is, with the bad news that Amos brings in chapter 7, the people end up longing for silence. Um, so you get... Israel wanting God to be quiet. Amaziah says to Amos, go home. Go and prophesy somewhere else. We don't want to hear your words. We don't want to hear God's words. But then in chapter 8, they get what they want. God stops speaking. There is a famine of the word of God. And it is dreadful. God gives them what they ask for and it is dreadful. Even just that point there, perhaps we need to press pause. Sometimes we don't like what God is saying to us. Maybe sometimes we know his message for us. But we're not interested because it's not what we want him to be saying. And so it's the proverbial head in the sand, or perhaps more relevant nowadays, it's the earphones in so we can't hear what he's saying. And yet at times God might just say, okay, you want me to stop speaking? Right, let's see how that goes for you. You see the the northern kingdom as God stops speaking it is dreadful because God's word brings life let's have a look at chapter 7 then we'll work through and see how we reach that point in one sense that is the climax of this little account but how do we get there so if you like chapter 7 Israel wants God to be quiet and the chapter begins actually in a really unusual way if you've been tracking with us through Amos you'll see this is something new in Amos in chapter 7 because here we have Amos pleading for the people. For the first time, I think, the Lord shows Amos what he's going to do, but it is too much for Amos. So the Lord shows him locusts, first of all, a picture of the harvest being desolated, and yet Amos mediates and pleads for the people. He's just spent six chapters speaking of the right justice and judgment of God over the people over the Northern Territory, over Israel. And yet now he moves role to become one who pleads for the people. Pleads to the Lord that he might limit their punishment. And the Lord relents, indeed. You get it again in verse 4 with fire. Again, Amos pleads. And again, the Lord relents. This is a new thing to happen in Amos. It's worth saying at this point... Um, we can chat afterwards if you like. You get these, you get these things through the Bible where there are, are prophets, often or leaders, who who seem to seem to make God change His mind. The Lord relents, it says. 
Um, I'm happy to chat afterwards. I don't think that's what's going on at all. I think at this point, God is calling forth faith and compassion in Amos, in God's prophet. This is the first time we've had this kind of personal vision. So it is a slight change in gear. And so rather than Amos being a mouthpiece, he becomes a mediator. And he, he is shown these images that the Lord might call forth compassion within Amos. That he pleads with God for the people, even for this rebellious people. And it says the Lord relents. I think that's a really helpful model for us as well as we think through the the role that we have in speaking the words of the Lord to a people who have forgotten him, who have walked out on him. And yet the example and the, the way that Amos does it, that he pleads that the Lord might show restraint, is one that we ought to reflect upon. We see something of Amos's heart at this point in a way that we've not really seen before. We're those who speak with truth, but we're full of grace as we speak. We speak with honesty, but we're full of love. We, we don't pull punches, but we engage with, in a compassionate and a kind way. In love, we plead with the Lord for people. We preach to them, but with tears in our eyes. And yet at verse 7, things change. The Lord shows Amos his next image, and it's that of a plumb line. And yet there's the ominous conclusion then at verse 8. And the Lord said, look, the Lord asked me, what do you see Amos? A plumb line, I replied. And the Lord said, look, I am setting a plumb line among my people Israel. I will spare them no longer. The high places of Isaac will be destroyed and the sanctuaries of Israel will be ruined. With my sword I will rise against the house of Jeroboam. Now a plumb line is a cord with a weighted end. And so it means you can get an exact vertical. It uses gravity to work out where the line is. And imagine if you're in the midst of a building project. It's hard enough now, but imagine thousands of years ago then, trying to determine the true vertical line was pretty hard. And so this is a line that doesn't change, it doesn't move. With the whims of the builder, with whatever's going on, it remains true, it remains reliable, it remains trustworthy. And so the point is, the Lord sets the standard. He says to Amos, Amos, think about the builder, think about the plumb line, think about that standard, and you'll see what I'm talking about. It means that the Lord's standards are not subject to the opinions or the slackness or the frustration of the builder, but they are true. They are unchanging. And so the Lord says, the time has come. There is no pleading, there is no relenting. The time has come. Remember what's going on, remember Amos is up in the north. It's a time of luxury, a time of plenty. And so there's one thing, you look at the people of God and it looks like they're, they're enjoying blessing from God. They've got bank balances, they've got land, they've got houses. But as we'll see, as we'll see, they were not being true to him. Far from it. You can even see it in verse 9. And what he's measuring them against with this plumb line. The high places of Isaac, the sanctuaries of Israel, those are sites of false worship. And so the time has come, says the Lord. And suddenly we get another prophet, a priest of Bethel, named Amaziah. 
Gemma Bethel was the place of worship in the north um, that the people had set up to themselves. It wasn't one that God had established, but that was where they worshipped. Um, he'd clearly heard the words of Amos. Um, Amos's words have clearly got his goat up. He wants Amos to shut up and to go home. Um, I think Amaziah is a really interesting character. We don't hear much about him at all. But it's striking to me that he is certainly in the pocket of King Jeroboam, the northern king of the time. You wonder whether whenever, whenever religion becomes aligned with power, it always tends towards compromise and corruption. And so Amaziah wants to get rid of Amos because he is speaking against Jeroboam, his king. Maybe Amaziah is in it for the money. And that's possibly implied there in verse 12 where go back to the land of Judah, earn your bread there, and do your prophesying there. Maybe that was what he did it for. And yet then Amos' response is, is striking and it is famous. He is, not, he is not a part of the establishment. He is not from a line of prophets. He's not a pro. And so he is not able to not prophesy. He has to keep on speaking. He's compelled to continue because he's been commissioned by the Lord to speak. Verse 14, Amos answered Amaziah, I was neither a prophet nor the son of a prophet, but I was a shepherd. And I also took care of sycamore fig trees. But the Lord took me from tending the flock and said to me, Go prophesy to my people Israel. That's quite exciting. There's something very non-establishment about Amos, non-conformist. <coughs> It's striking in a city like Oxford, actually, to reflect upon that. Often we're seen as sort of establishment, as strategic. And yet it's a good reminder the Lord loves to use the outsiders, the unexpected. Can anything good come from Nazareth? They said. Amos was a shepherd. He's not come from a line of prophets. And so he can speak with authority because he doesn't speak from within the system. But the Lord has raised him up for a purpose. Um, strikingly, that's actually what he often does. If you look back at church history, um, one writer says this, um, talking about the raising up of gospel ministers. They say, we are missing the William Careys who started life as a cobbler and became the founder of the modern missionary movement. We are missing the John Bunyans who was a tinker's son but who from his prison cell influenced the world with his book Pilgrim's Progress. We are missing the Charles Haddon Spurgeons who had virtually no formal education. He became Victorian England's foremost preacher. We are missing the Gladys Elwoods who started work as a parlour maid, failed the exam to enter China Inland Mission but went to China anyway and became known far and wide as the virtuous one. And so establishment Amaziah wants non-establishment Amos to shut up and go home. But Amos can't do that because the Lord has raised him up for this purpose. And yet, as we've said, there's a sense in which they get what they want in chapter 8. God does stop speaking, and it is dreadful. God's patience does run out in chapter 8 and you see that with the fourth picture the fruit bowl 
So we've had locusts, we've had fire, we've had plumb lines, now fourthly we've got the fruit bowl. And you wonder what Amos thought was going on when he sees this basket of ripe fruit in verse 2. Fruit is nice, ripe fruit is especially nice, it's good for eating, it's good for enjoyment. It may even have been for Amos that came to mind particular Jewish festivals, thinking of God's blessing, his abundance. And yet the reality is it's horrific, because the ripeness of the fruit doesn't show blessing, it shows, actually it shows readiness for judgment. End of verse 2. The time is ripe for my people Israel, I will spare them no longer. And so in place of their rejoicing at the temple, in place of their joy, there will be wailing and there will be mourning. Verse 3, the songs of the temple will turn to wailing. Many, many bodies flung everywhere, silence. I take it the rejoicing in the temple, actually, from chapter 5 a couple of weeks ago, is what God is not listening to anymore. He's bunged his ears up to their time at the temple because their hearts are far from him. And the mourning, well presumably the mourning is because people won't even get a burial anymore, dead bodies will be flung everywhere. Actually if you fast forward 40 years to when the Assyrians do come, and they do conquer and exile the people of God in the north, actually the Assyrian tradition was to pile up body parts, heads and hands at city gates, to warn others as possible troublemakers. So actually verse 3 comes to pass. Maybe we think, well this is unfair. But it's striking, what you get in verse 4 to 10 particularly is you see that it's not arbitrary, but actually because of their hatred of the Lord. That is why the time has come. Let me just try and show you first of all how, if you like, anti-God the sins of Israel were at this point. You see, see, we have a a loving God, he is kind, he is generous, he is good. He cares about social justice, he cares about the poor and about the needy. He he has a heart for those whom others do not have a heart for. And yet, verse 4, his people hate the poor and the needy, they trample on them. We have a relational, speaking God who sets up festivals and Sabbaths so people can worship him and know him and love him. And yet, first half of verse 5, but well, they're looking at their watches. They want to get these things over and done with so they can make more profits. They love money. They love self more than they love God. Or again, we have a God who loves truth and honesty, whose words we can trust. But then the second half of verse 5, they skimp on the measure, they cheat with dishonest scales. Essentially, there are get-rich-quick scams going on. We'll think about these more in a moment. But you see what Israel do in response to them. They show us what they believe about him, what they don't believe about him, and so then they act accordingly. He doesn't have the place in his, their lives that he, he deserves. Of course, the danger is that we quickly point the finger at those things and actually end up condemning ourselves. the trap of me putting myself at the centre rather than God, of me serving self rather than him, of me using others to get what I want as they were. We may not we may not trample the needy or the poor of the land, and we may do actually in some of the ways that we live. But actually so often what we do can be to serve self rather than serve others. 
or the clock watching on the Sabbath. Verse 5a, the Sabbath, the new moon, really it was about getting what they want to themselves so they can get richer. Like, well, when would this new moon be over? The new moon was a festival given by Moses once every four weeks. Um, you had burnt offerings, grain offerings, wine offerings, and the goat as a sin offering. Well, the Sabbath, as you're probably aware, the seventh day, chance to remember God's creation and God's redemption. Pressing pause to reflect upon and, and love their Creator. But actually, those things are just kind of the advert breaks for the rest of life in the minds of Israel. Well, then we can get back and do what I really want to do. I can serve self, thank you very much. I think these are quite uncomfortable verses, actually. I think we can, perhaps I can see myself far too easily in them. What are they doing there? Committing their body to church, but their minds and their hearts elsewhere to self. Maybe they sit through the sermon patiently smiling, but minds on other things, waiting for what's to come, waiting for getting on with the real life. Actually, like, when can I serve self again? Well, the rest of the week, we have Monday to Saturday, when I get busy and my diary gets full and time with God gets relegated and it becomes about serving self again. These verses do act as something of a mirror. And it's an uncomfortable mirror, perhaps. And then have a look as well at the, the second half of verse 5. Um, scrimping on the measure, boosting the price. So the Sabbath and the new moon over, that we may market wheat, skimp on the measure, boost the price, cheat with dishonest scales. The, the picture is one of sellers, of shopkeepers, who are deceitful and dishonest. Probably that they're charging people for more than they're getting. Um, so going to the sweet shop, and you've got your, your, olden days, you've got your bag with a pound of cola bottles. But the guy behind the counter has fixed the scale, so rather than getting 16 ounces of cola bottles, you only get 14 ounces. I mean, he's, he's mucked with the dial, so you end up with not as much. Actually, it's worse than that, because it's not just you only get 14 ounces of cola bottles, but within that, there's sawdust as well. You're being overcharged on two accounts. Um, one, dodgy scales, and two, the sweepings of the wheat, end of verse 6. But we're not just buying cola bottles, we're talking about the poor, who are being swindled out of money. That's interesting, there have been relics found from within ancient shops that would have two sets of weights. Um, one for buying, to overweight, to get it for cheap. One for selling, to underweight, to sell it for more. So this was happening. And yet it seems that the people of God were doing it at the expense of the poor. You would choose which weights you wanted depending on what you were doing and how to swindle people. And yet we serve a God who loves truth who speaks truthfully. But again, I wonder sometimes whether we can use our words in such a way that we end up serving self, that we're economical with the truth, in such a way that we um, get served, because it gets uncomfortable. Which means that God's patience with them uh, has gone. Verse 7, he, he swears by himself. What more can he swear by? God will judge them. And so there will be mourning again. Verse 8 to 10, let me read. Will not the land tremble for this, and all who live in it mourn? 
The whole land will rise like the Nile, it will be stirred up and then sink like the river of Egypt. In that day, declares the Sovereign Lord, I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. I will turn your religious festivals into mourning and your singing into weeping. I will make all of you wear sackcloth and shave your heads. I will make that time like mourning for an only sun at the end of it, like a bitter day. You see what's going on? The, the promised land that God has led his people to is to be a place of blessing and now it becomes a place of curse. And so what happens, it's striking, isn't it, is that as Assyria comes and destroys the place, it will be like it is Egypt again. <coughs> There's going to be judgment, there'll be plagues. He uses um, Egyptian geography in verse 8. He talks about darkness in verse 9. And then even in verse 10, it's the, the firstborn son. The exile will be the exodus once again. They're back in slavery. They've gone back. God placing his people under captivity, away from the place of blessing, out of the promised land, into the place of slavery and darkness once again. And that culminates then in that he removes his word from them. So there's a famine, as we've said, but verse 11 is not a famine of food or water, so he will stop speaking. And if we think that doesn't sound so bad, actually verse 12 shows us that it will. It will be awful. People will stagger from sea to sea and wander from north to east, searching for the word of God, but they will not find it. (coughs) You see, God's word brings life. He speaks and creation happens. He he speaks and people are reborn. He speaks and things change. Israel is about to discover the truth from Deuteronomy, that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. And when that word is removed, then the life that it gives is removed too. And so the northern kingdom, pretty soon, will disappear. At least perhaps until John chapter 4, when you have a Samaritan woman who meets with Jesus. But his word is removed, and so verse 12, you've got visions of people who are desperately seeking searching for what they should have listened to in the first place. They wanted God to shut his mouth. When he does, they realise what they've lost. I, I wonder whether you can't help but feel like something of this was seen in the, um, the 20th century. You look back at early ch- uh, recent church history, sorry. seems to me in the first half of the 20th century last bit of the 19th, liberalism affected theological colleges that spread into churches, spread into pulpits. And so many churches have emptied and died. There's been a famine of the living word of God and it's led to death. It's led to buildings going on the market. Even this last week, half of a particular denomination of Scottish churches from Glasgow, Aberdeen, Aberdeen, gone on the market. I wonder it's because if you look back a hundred years or so, you see the word of God being taken out of people's hands. And so with that comes death. The consequences are still here. You abandon the word of God, you lose touch with him, 
And actually then graciously in the second half of the 20th century, after the Second World War, there were theologians who did teach the Bible, who there's a, a, a regaining of trust in the scriptures, which I think has led to pulpits growing and churches flourishing and God's life-giving word bringing growth. We see this proliferation of church plants and all kinds of things going on. Now I'm sure that's overly simplistic, but I wonder if there are patterns there that reveal something of that kind of thing that we see at the end of Amos 8. I think there are pertinent lessons for us. You would think, I hope, that the sidelining of God's word wouldn't be an easy thing for us to, to slip into, a church like Morgan Road Church. But I want to say, friends, there are so many potential distractions for us as a church corporately, and indeed for those who teach the Bible week by week, that we need to be careful. Even just being in this new building, with all the logistical and practical problems that will come with it, we mustn't let the Bible be sidelined. We mustn't let our diaries so fill up with meetings and discussions that we actually lose the Word of God. Study of the Word of God. Or maybe even as a, as a church family, one of the things I think we're very good at is caring for each other. But we mustn't drift into neglecting God's Word in that. We need to let family life be centred around the Word of God, not apart from it. What happens if we see things working in other churches, working better than Bible stuff? We, oh, we just need a new website, that's what will make things grow, or that's what will bring health and life and flourishing, or... Or we just need to put this thing in place and then that will make things grow. Well, that will bring health and life and flourishing. But there'll always be a temptation towards pragmatism. And pray so then that those who teach the Word of God to you, that have the privilege and responsibility to open up the Bible week by week, will do it faithfully. The, The temptation again can be to teach what we want it to say rather than what it actually says. To just skim over the surface rather than digging deep because it's harder to, to ignore the stuff that makes us feel uncomfortable or makes us stick out in our current culture and our current world. Pray for us. We need it. I want to suggest that all of those and many more can possibly be ways that subtly we just turn down the volume of God's voice. They're temptations. Tendencies. Dangers. I'm struck as well, 13 and 14 as we finish the passage off, by the, the outcome of God's voice being removed from Israel. Verse 13. The lovely young women and strong young men will faint because of thirst. I think that means that the consequences will be seen particularly for the next generation. I think that's what's going on there. The next generation seem to be hit hardest. Why the next generation? Well, I guess a a reliance upon their parents' teaching, a reliance upon the word of God being at the heart of family life, the heart of um, social life. Well, if that is gone, then actually the next generation will, will be those who suffer. The legacy of the generation before can be so important for the generation to come. If we at Modern Road sideline the Bible, it'll be in one sense the kids particularly who drift and who suffer. It'll be, it'll be junior church that shrinks. It'll be just a lack of people growing up through the church. It'll be who will be the next generation of leaders. 
their parents don't trust the word of God, then how will they, in human terms? And you wonder as well, in verse 14, what's going on there. I wonder whether, that with youth there's a susceptibility to other things, to lies. So the lovely young women and strong young men, strong young men, sorry, those who swear by the sin of Samaria, who worship the, the god of Dan or Beersheba, all seemingly where the northern kingdom have been unfaithful. Maybe there's a susceptibility. And so if the word of God is gone, then they drift off into other things. Amos has been hard work, hasn't he? I don't know how you feel at the end of chapter 8. I think a couple of things just to reflect upon for us as believers, this side of Jesus, this side of the cross. Um, Number one, I think we find ourselves again at the foot of the cross, realising that we are no better than Israel, really. We we slip into their sin so easily, we can so easily be self-centred. We can so easily just go through the motions of church and a religious life, and yet it be about us. And so we come to the cross thankful for the Lord Jesus as he takes the justice that we deserve upon himself. I think that is there. I think we must do that and we'll sing shortly. He is exiled from the presence and blessing of God in our place that we might not be. We can have assurance. But I've been reflecting on this as well and I wonder if there's something slightly different for us. Will, will God ever stop speaking to us in one sense but at times we can feel distant. At times it might be that we, we feel like there aren't words there, that he's not communicating. But in another, we, he certainly is and he always will be. Because we live in a different place, a different time. Let me read to you from Hebrews 1, verse 1 to 4. The writer of the Hebrews, whoever he may be. Right. In the past... God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom also he made the universe. The, the Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful words. After he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven, so he became as much superior to the angels of the name he has inherited is superior to theirs. In these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son. So if you see, there's a sense in which God has spoken and will always be speaking because, because of Jesus. His final words. His perfect words. And so we can, we can have confidence, a humble confidence, that we won't, we won't be walking around trying to hear God's voice we won't have that unbearable sense that the people do. There won't be a famine of the word of God for us. Because he has spoken in Christ. Let's speak to him now as we pray. Father in heaven, this is a sobering couple of passages. We we see once again something of the kind of God you are. We see that you are a God of justice. We see that you rightly, because you are so good, seek to deal with 
the reality of your people's sin. And so once again we are thankful for the Lord Jesus. Thankful because he, he was punished in our place. But thankful because you have spoken to us through him. And so we won't have that famine that we read of. And yet, yet we see so much more too. We see something of the, the heart of Amos as he pleads with you. As he looks to you for, for mercy. We see something of Amos as he, he speaks for you from a place of being an outsider. And so we thank you that you will use even people like us, even in a city like this. And we're struck again by your kindness and concern. Lord, we see ourselves far too easily in your people. We see the way in which they don't take you seriously. They seek to serve self rather than serving you. They go through the motions of, of worshipping you and yet hearts are far from you. And so we finish. Thankful for Christ. In his precious name we pray. Amen.